you have a copy of Scripture, I invite you to open up to Luke 7, uh, verses 1 through 10. Luke 7, verses 1 through 10. And after he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. And when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him. For he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word, and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Will you pray with me? Gracious and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have revealed yourself through uh, your word, Lord, and that you have revealed yourself through your Son, and that he reveals the truth of your gospel, Lord. And I pray that as we hear this word this evening, that it can uh, impact our hearts, that you can give us ears to listen, you can give us hearts filled with expectancy, Lord, because this is the way that you speak to us, Lord. You've chosen to speak to us through your word, and so may we expect you to speak with power. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever loved a musical artist, but then listened to them so much that their music starts to wear out on you a little bit? I can't tell you how many times I've done this. I'll discover a new artist, I'll get so excited, and I'll listen to them time and time again until it becomes the soundtrack of my life. And I'll keep listening, and I'll keep listening. And then one day, the music will start to sound just a little bit too familiar. It'll start to wear out just a little bit. And the songs that used to excite me, they begin to play like a foregone conclusion. They start to even get boring. And I lose the thrill and the enjoyment that drew me towards that group in the first place. And usually when this happens, there's two things that I'll do. One is to take a step back and not listen for a while. I had to do that in high school with John Mayer. And then uh, another thing that I'll do is I'll take time to actively listen to the music from a new perspective. And usually what this means is that maybe I'll focus on a different instrument than usual. Maybe I'll listen on a different format like vinyl or maybe I'll listen to live recordings of the songs. And whenever I do this, I get to listen to the music with a perspective I didn't have previously. And whenever this happens, I end up hearing something that I didn't hear the previous hundred times when I was listening like a zombie. And, you know, certain things stand out, certain things have more impact, and sure enough, every time I do this, my love for the group gets reignited once again. 
And I think that this type of dynamic can show up in our own Christian lives too, right? We come to church week in and week out, and we hear about Jesus. We try our best to read his word throughout the week and to pray to him. And the longer we walk with Jesus, the more familiar he becomes. And I don't want you to get me wrong. It's good for us to be familiar with Jesus. We want to be familiar with our Savior. But on the other hand, a comfortable, stale familiarity can make us forget who Jesus says he is and who Jesus shows himself to be. But thankfully, as with a musical group, we can fight this forgetfulness by actively watching and listening to Jesus so as to truly see and hear him. And so tonight's passage, it's a familiar one. It's one you've probably heard many times before. And yet within this passage, we get a character that sees Jesus with a perspective that would have been shocking to the original audience, that would have been shocking to Jesus' disciples. And it's through this perspective that we are invited tonight to see Jesus, to see through those same eyes and realize that he's not just any old prophet, he's not just any old teacher, but that Jesus is God in the flesh who has come with mercy, power, and authority to save sinners and to declare them worthy. And so we're going to look at this passage tonight under three headings. We're going to look at a worthy man with an unworthy plea and a marveling Messiah. A worthy man, an unworthy plea, and a marveling Messiah. Our passage opens at the conclusion of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, very similar to, sorry, Sermon on the Plain, which is very similar to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 and 7. And it's interesting to note this context because it gives a sense of expectancy to this story, right? Jesus has just got done teaching for an entire chapter, and the questions arise, how will Jesus' words manifest in his ministry? How are the poor going to be blessed? How are the rich going to be filled with woe? How are enemies going to be loved? How is Christ going to display the kingdom? These are the questions that are hanging in the atmosphere of this coming encounter. And so verse 2 comes and it introduces us to our main character and our main dilemma, a centurion whose slave is on the verge of death. See, Jesus enters Capernaum and he's intercepted by a group of Jewish elders sent by the centurion to plead for Jesus to heal this servant. And as they plead his case, it's clear that there is one word that characterizes this centurion. And that word is worthy. They plead earnestly to Jesus. And the text says in verse 5, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And I know that we are all well-trained, reformed people, and so we hear the language of worthiness and we shudder a little bit. We want to keep that word as far away from Jesus as possible, right? Why would we ever want to establish worth before Christ? But I invite you to think about this from a first-century Jewish perspective, because centurions at the time, they were considered in a very particular way. They were military leaders that were in charge of about 100 soldiers, and they would be sent to areas all throughout the empire in order to maintain the peace. And usually, maintaining the peace looked like silencing oppression. So here would come this soldier with a hundred other soldiers, and they were the symbol of imperial oppression and suffering. And worst of all, they were Gentiles. And yet we see here 
that there is a centurion who has come and who has befriended the people he's been called to oppress, a centurion who has befriended the Jewish elders to such an extent that they are willing to plead earnestly on his behalf, a centurion who has used his vast imperial wealth to build a synagogue for the local Jewish people, a centurion that so honors and cares for his servant when others would have treated him as mere property at the time. So he might have been a Gentile, but the locals were maybe willing to concede that he was a good Gentile. Consider somebody uh, in comparison like uh, Oscar Schindler, uh, the namesake of the book and the movie, The Schindler's List, right? Oscar Schindler, he was this member of the Nazi party. He was corrupt. He was greedy. He was the picture of everything that was wrong. But as the war continued to wage on, he had this change of heart, and he uses his power, his authority, and his vast wealth in order to protect and to save countless Jewish lives and to protect them in occupied Poland. And so on the surface, we have this man that represents everything that's evil, everything that's wrong, and yet he uses his wealth, his worthiness, his power, and his authority to such an extent that all of those negative connotations are overturned and people see him as good. People see him as worthy. And that's exactly what the centurion has done. Despite all of these negative connotations, he has found a way to get this verdict of worthiness from these Jewish elders and the locals. And so Jesus hears this report, and he agrees to come and to visit the centurion. But doesn't this strike you as like a little bit odd? I mean, Jesus just said when the Sermon on the Plain, he said, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. What is compelling Jesus to move towards the centurion? Because ultimately, wouldn't this just be repaying good for good? And besides, isn't the, isn't the centurion rich? And aren't the rich supposed to be filled with woe? How is this approach on Jesus' behalf displaying the kingdom? Well, there's barely a moment to even question these intentions before another delegation shows up and intercepts Jesus. But this time, it's a delegation that's made up of friends. And we see that they come with a very different message. They come with a message of this worthy man giving an unworthy plea, our second point. They come and they bear this message from the centurion in verses 6 and 7. Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. Despite all his power, all of his honor, all of his wealth and ability, the centurion knows that at the end of the day, he is a Gentile. And he's a Gentile who's asking a Jewish man to come into his house and to come into contact with a dying man. You see, the centurion didn't just build the synagogue for show. The centurion was aware of the God of Israel. And he knew that if he was asking Jesus to come near, that means he was asking Jesus to suffer social taboo and uncleanness and he knew that he is not worthy to ask such a thing of Jesus. And so here the centurion is. He's powerless to save his own servant, and yet he's confronted with the fact that he is unworthy to have Jesus come and save him too. He can't do anything, and he can't ask Jesus to come either. 
Have you ever been in a situation where you've been utterly confronted with your lack of power or with your lack of worth? No matter what you do, no matter how hard you strive, you come up short time after time after time? We all have. I can assure you, every single one has felt this way. And usually when this happens, we respond in one of two ways. One thing that we'll try to do is we'll try in the midst of this deficit to accumulate power, to accumulate authority where there is none. It's a response that says, if I'm not enough, then I'm going to make myself enough. And other times, we simply give up and we yield to fate. And that's the response that says, you'll never be enough, so just accept it. See, these responses, they seem so different from each other, right? One is building the person up, the other one is tearing us down. But you see, they're both rooted in self-reliance. We're confronted with our limits, and we fool ourselves into thinking that the answer lies within ourselves. And so we either try to double down and transcend those limits, or we try to hide within those limits. And yet, this is not what the centurion does. The centurion is utterly confronted with his powerlessness and his lack of worth, and yet he doesn't stay there. He looks beyond himself. Join me and read the fullness of verses 6 and 7. It says, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word. But say the word and let my servant be healed. You see, in the midst of this confrontation, when he's butting up against the limits of his power and his worth, he turns and confesses that neither of these limitations limit Christ. He may be utterly hopeless and utterly limited, but Christ is not. And so it's, it's as if he's saying, Jesus, I know that you may not be able to draw near, but that does not mean that you are unable to save. I know that I may be unworthy, but that doesn't mean that you are unworthy. I may have no authority, but you have authority. And ironically, the centurion understands this by reflecting on his own limited authority. If you look at verse 8, he says, For I too am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me, and I say to one, Go, and he goes, and to another, Come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does this. In effect, what he's saying is, I say the word, and I can get what I want by virtue of my authority. But Lord, here I am, unable to give a word to sickness and to death. Here I am, unworthy to give an answer. But you are both worthy and able to give an answer. And just like me, you only need to say the word. My word commands men, but your word commands life and death itself. And so you don't need to come. Lord, you don't need to come. I am not worthy, but merely speak. Say the word and let my servant be healed. How different is this from the first delegation's message, right? This first delegation comes and we get this picture of a worthy man who is found in the most unexpected of places. And then the second delegation comes and we hear from the centurion's own mouth the most unlikely confession of unworthiness and humility before Christ. His unworthiness, his lack of power, his limited authority do not leave him stuck and abandoned, 
but they lead him beyond himself and his self-sufficiency toward Christ. There's nothing he can do, but he knows that the power to save rests in Christ and in the power of his word. And in response to this, we get one of the most amazing statements in all of Scripture. In verse 9, when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. Which brings us to our final point, a marveling Messiah. Here is God in the flesh. All authority, all power, all wisdom, all worthiness, the God-man himself. And for once, he is not the one that is marveling others, but he is the one stepping back and marveling himself. The Greek word that's used here, to marvel, uh, it's only applied to Jesus twice in Scripture. The first time is in Mark 6, verses 7, when Jesus marvels at the unbelief of Nazareth. And the second time is here, when he marvels at the belief of the centurion. But what is it about the centurion's faith that makes Jesus step back and marvel? Well, there's three things about this faith. First, it's a faith that truly sees Jesus. You see, in crafting this story, Luke is very aware of another parallel to the ministry of Elisha, where another Gentile military leader is healed, Naaman. See, Naaman has leprosy and is sent to the king of Israel to find a cure. And we read in 2 Kings 5-7 that the king tore his clothes and he said, Am I God? Am I God to kill and to make alive? That this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy. He tears his clothes. He says, I am not God. I cannot live, make alive, and kill. I cannot heal this man. But Elisha hears this. He calls to Naaman and he tells him to wash seven times in the Jordan so that he could be healed and so that he could know that there's a prophet in Israel. But what's the point of this illusion? What's the point of this background? Well, you see, the centurion, by this confession, he is understanding that somebody greater than Elisha has come, that unlike the king and unlike even the prophets, Christ has power in himself and by the power of his own word to kill and to make alive. Christ has power to heal and to see, save. And so you see, when the centurion confesses the power of Jesus' word to heal, he is confessing, perhaps even beyond his ability, that Christ is God in the flesh, that Christ is the only one who has that authority of God to heal and to save. And so he sees Jesus. He sees his need. He knows that Christ alone can meet that need. And then he waits, which is just as stunning as anything else in this passage. He waits. I mean, when you think about it, not once does he speak with Jesus face to face. He sends delegation after delegation, and the whole time he's probably at the bedside of his servant. He is the main character of this passage, and yet he never shows up. And you might be wondering, how can he be so passive? I mean, think about it. What wouldn't you do to protect something or somebody that is so precious? that is so valuable to you, right? Wouldn't you move mountains? Wouldn't you do everything you could to bring about a speedy resolution to losing something? I mean, nothing expresses what we functionally believe in more 
than when the things that are precious to us are threatened in some way. When we come face to face with that threat, then our hearts are exposed. And yet here we see this centurion with this dire need. He knows that the healing and the answer is in Jesus alone, and yet he waits. He believes in Christ and waits. It reminds me of one of my favorite books uh, slash movies. You can look up either one. Uh, They're both great. Uh, A Monster Calls. And in this movie, um, a monster visits a boy, and he tells him stories to help him through his mother's cancer diagnosis. And one of these stories is about a, a pastor, a pastor who at the turn of the Industrial Revolution would often preach against the local apothecary, which is like a medicine man. And he would preach against this apothecary week in and week out to the point that nobody would accept his business. But then one day, the pastor's daughters fall ill. And when it seems as though prayer does nothing, when it seems as though modern medicine does nothing, as a last-ditch effort, the pastor gets on his horse and he goes to visit this apothecary and he asks for help. He asks for some of his medicine. But the apothecary refuses and the daughters die. And when the boy hears this story, he gets angry at the tree. He's like, how could the apothecary do this? How could he do something so wicked? But the tree corrects him. And he says, sure, the apothecary was greedy and rude and bitter, but I tell you, the pastor was nothing. And he goes on to say, belief is half of all healing. Belief in the cure. Belief in the future that awaits. And here is a man who lived on belief and yet who sacrificed it at the first challenge. Right when he needed it most, he believed selfishly and fearfully. But here, this picture of the centurion's faith, we see a man who truly lives on belief. We see a man who sees the cure in Christ. We see a man that believes selflessly and courageously in the future that awaits and then waits on that cure. And faith like this is only possible if you can truly see Jesus, if you can truly see that he alone has the power to save, the power to heal weak and needy sinners. Second, this faith is marvelous because it's a faith that understands the kingdom. Earlier, I questioned what was Jesus' intent in going to visit the centurion, right? I asked, how can this display the kingdom? Well, we see that both in Jesus' approach and the centurion's faith, the kingdom is on full display. I noticed that the the centurion was passive in a way, right? He never sees Jesus face to face. But did you also notice how passive Jesus seems in this passage? The only thing Jesus really does is commend the faith of the centurion. Jesus only ever comes as close as the centurion asks of him. Is this just because Jesus is wishy-washy? He's weak? He's ineffective? No. It's because Jesus is powerful, but also meek. My old pastor used to describe meekness like this. It's power that's bridled for the sake of another. One who is powerful yet stoops down low to lift another up. And he compared it to a great horse, right? You don't master a horse. A horse merely lets you put a saddle on it and lets you ride it and lifts you up. 
And that's what we see on display here. Jesus is bridling his power and glory in order to serve the centurion and his servant. It's almost as if we have a Lord who is willing to accommodate himself to our limited but genuine understanding and faith. See, he's not too glorious. He is not too glorious to stoop down low for those he's come to serve. He is not too glorious to become the last in order for others to become the first. And on the other hand, we see the kingdom displayed through the centurion's faith. By every earthly standard, the centurion was honored, powerful, wealthy, and worthy. And yet, when faced with the reality of who Jesus is, he knows that he is nothing. He understands that the only way to draw near to Jesus is to remove all self-sufficiency, to remove any pretense towards saving himself, that he had to realize that he was spiritually poor and to cast himself on the riches of Christ's mercy. And again, he understood the last will become first. The first need to become last. The poor need to become rich spiritually. And then finally, this faith is marvelous because it's a faith that's ordinary. And that's what I want us to see more than anything tonight, is that as miraculous as the centurion's faith is in this context, at the end of the day, it's ordinary. Because think about it. The faith that we are called to display is the exact same as the centurion's, isn't it? We are called to believe in Christ sight unseen, believing in the power of His Word to save, that Word that says, you cannot save yourself, but I have come to save you. I have come to live perfectly on your behalf, to die on the cross for your sins, to rise again to new life. That's what we're called to believe. We're called to abandon our inherent self-worth and our inherent power to save ourselves and to rest in the Christ that doesn't exist within ourselves, that's not found within introspective, but to rest and believe on the Christ that exists outside of ourselves. We're called to behold a Christ who is happy to stoop low and to serve us, who lived and died for us. The faith that made Christ marvel is the same faith that we have all been called to or perhaps that you are called to for the first time this evening to see this Christ because faith comes to life when we put our self-sufficiency to death. So often, I come before God's presence, even as a believer, and I am tempted to rest on my own strength and my own worth. Sometimes I hide. I know that I can't measure up, and so I hide before God. I fail to come before Him in repentance and in faith. I hide my sin. I hide my unworthiness, thinking that I can somehow uh, flee the sight of God. But if I'm honest, most of the time what I try to do is measure up. I remember a time when I was around Christian circles, but I was not yet a Christian. I had not yet heard the gospel, but I certainly heard a version of works righteousness. And I heard a version of the gospel that said, you need to repent almost as a form of penance. That what repentance really is, is you need to have this ongoing list of ways you're screwing up in order to remember how to not screw up next time, how to do better and better so that one day you don't have to come before the Lord, so that one day you'll finally be enough. And what did that lead to? It led to endless tears because I knew I could never measure up. I knew that this would be an endless rat race of trying to do better and to be better, to finally become worthy before God, 
and yet knowing that I could never be enough. I could never be worthy. And so, as we try to hide from God or we try to measure up, again, the problem with both of these responses is that they begin and they end with self. Neither of these responses understands that the gospel and salvation exists beyond ourselves. It exists outside of ourselves, right? Because so often we're tempted to go into the introspection. We're tempted to follow that rat wheel of constantly looking inward, trying to do better, to be better. Or we might look outside of ourselves and try to find false saviors that will never deliver us. But what does the gospel say? What is that word that Christ calls us to believe? That salvation exists beyond you. That you contribute nothing to your salvation, but I have contributed everything. That I came in the flesh to live a perfect life for you. I came in order to die on the cross for your sins. That I rose again from the dead to secure all of these blessings and benefits so that as I am resurrected in a new creation, you too can be a resurrected new creation. So don't look inside of yourselves. Don't go on that wheel of introspection, but go and look outward. Be extrospective. Realize that this word of salvation comes from outside of yourself. You'll never be able to find it in the recesses of your heart, but you'll find it in this word, this word that you are called to believe in, this word of the cross that says, I am worthy, I am sufficient, and I have come to make you worthy. I've come to make you a child. I've come to forgive you. This is the Jesus that you are called to see this evening. So don't run from him and don't try to measure up before him. Abandon yourself and run toward him. Run toward him. Cast yourself upon him and know that he alone has power to save because he is the one who first came near. He is the one who first gave himself up for our sake and he is the one that came first to make us worthy. So don't let your perceived unworthiness keep you from him because that's the very reason he came. He came to make you worthy. All we need to do is abandon our self-sufficiency and cast our life upon him. So see your need. See that you don't have power. See that you don't have authority. See that you don't have worthiness. But don't stay there. Look beyond that and see Christ. See that he is the solution. See that he is the cure. Look beyond yourself and see Jesus. Rest upon his finished work alone. And know that when you do so, only then will you be worthy because he is the worthy one. Come for you. Let's pray. Gracious and heavenly Father, I thank you that despite our utter unworthiness, Lord, you, you have always remained worthy. You are the God of all creation, that you created us for communion with yourself. And yet, Lord, through the fall, we rebelled against you, and we continue to rebel against you. We continue to look to ourselves. We continue to try and make ourselves into little gods, to build our own kingdoms, to live in the kingdom of our own making that doesn't extend beyond the recesses of our head and our hearts, Lord. And yet, you were so pleased to send your Son to save us. 
Lord, you would have been perfectly just to leave us in the midst of our fallenness. And yet, you were not content to do so. You decided to draw near to us. You decided that Christ would come in the flesh, the second person of the Godhead, fully God and fully man, to ransom wayward and weary and broken sinners. And Lord, I pray that whether it's for the first time or whether it's a reminder that we need each and every day, that we know that you came for us and that if we truly believe in you, your word of the cross guarantees that you will save us, that you have delivered us, that you've made us worthy. So Lord, may we abandon ourselves and run to you, that we may find our identity in what Christ has done. May we never look to what we may think about ourselves, towards what others may say about us, towards what the world tries to say about us, but may we let your word of deliverance and faith and truth reign in our hearts. May that be the loudest voice in our lives as we go about into this new year, that in the midst of everything that we may hear, your voice may ring true above them all, and that we may remember that we are delivered, that we are children, and that you are the one that makes us worthy. And we pray this, Lord, in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Will you please rise, and we're going to sing in response, My worth is not in what I own.
After the benediction, um, these folks are going to sing a lovely song of benediction, song, Go Now in Peace, Never Be Afraid. God will go with you every hour, every day. And that's the confidence we have as we step out into a new week, into a new year. Uh, we go with the blessing of God. As I speak the benediction tonight, know that these words aren't God's wish for you. This is, these are God's gifts to you. And so receive them, uh, these gifts of God's mercy and grace. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you and abide with you all. Amen.